Hello, Greg, how are you? I am very well. So my name is Nir Izakovich, and I uh, direct the Applied Ethics Center at UMass in Boston, and this is our Ethics in Action podcast. And my guest today is my good and old friend, Greg Fried. Greg, it's great to see you. Greg uh, teaches philosophy, he's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Uh, we worked uh, together for uh, many years at Suffolk University in Boston. Greg does uh, teaching and writing in a variety of areas, political philosophy, um, 20th century uh, continental philosophy with uh, an emphasis uh, on Heidegger, um, uh, some areas of uh, the history of ethics uh, and applied ethics. He wrote a bunch of books uh, on Heidegger, a, a wonderful uh, a book some years ago uh, on uh, torture, co-written uh, with Charles Fried. Uh, he has a book coming out called uh, Towards Polemical Ethics Between Heidegger and Plato, which is coming out this year, right? I hope so. It, it depends on the coronavirus, <laughs> whether it knocks out any of the presses. There you go. I hope, I hope it doesn't, and congratulations. I can't. I'm going to be one of your first customers with that one. Um, and um, Greg and I have been for uh, many years on and off uh, 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 talking about uh, Thucydides and reading Thucydides. So it seemed especially uh, apropos to uh, zoom in uh, today on one famous and relevant, unfortunately, passage of the history of the Peloponnesian War, namely Thucydides' discussion um, of the plague uh, that hit Athens a year or so uh, into uh, the Peloponnesian War. So maybe a word or two of uh, setup before we launch into this. Um, uh, Thucydides' account is an account of the a great, if you want, world war of the uh, ancient world between uh, the Athenian and the Spartan uh, coalitions. We are uh, around 430 uh, BC as we join the text. This is about a year into the war between um, uh, Athens uh, and Sparta. Athens, uh, led by Pericles, adopts this pretty um, innovative uh, strategy of uh, uh, taking uh, most of the uh, subjects behind a uh, great wall that uh, Pericles uh, uh, builds connecting the uh, city to its port and it's uh, an innovative defensive strategy. The idea is that they would uh, exhaust their uh, Spartan adversaries, uh, make them uh, raid the countryside, but not actually be able to cause any strategic damage uh, to the city, which uh, was impregnable behind uh, its walls, and this works pretty well uh, in spite of some of the logistical and the psychological problems with it. But it seems, we don't completely know, it seems like Athens' um, idea of uh, supplying itself by sea as it waits behind the wall backfires, and uh, they, with their grain shipments, import um, a pathogen, a plague uh, of not completely clear uh, nature, which quite quickly uh, wreaks havoc uh, in the city, uh, havoc exacerbated by how crowded things are. And by some accounts, uh, by the time this is over, it kills about a third of the city's inhabitants, uh, including uh, uh, Pericles, uh, its leader. Thucydides, uh, who is an Athenian uh, 
senior officer also gets it but survives and um i think he gets it right um and uh he uh gives a very moving and very uh dispassionate uh at the same time account uh of the plague um so with that background uh on the table um greg what do you what do you find most interesting about this uh, account what do you found most moving i guess relevant is one of the relevant questions we can we can talk those are two separate questions but first right. let me say how how pleased i am to be able to talk with you about this today in the midst of our our virus our pandemic it it is very interesting that what you said about the Peloponnesian War, that it was the ancient world's world war, uh, that it was what Thucydides said was the greatest motion of his times. And we now are in an age of globalism where this pandemic is a manifestation of our globalism and in much the same way that you mentioned Athens being vulnerable to the plague, uh, all the corners of the earth are vulnerable now to these kinds of pathogens because of our interconnection. Athens was a commercial city. Its strength was based on its commercial and naval empire. And yet it was that same openness in a bit of its port in Piraeus, an openness in culture of ideas, which also left it open to this pathogen. And that's a similar situation that we all face now. Yeah, and it's interesting in that context that at least some of the people who study this say that Sparta never suffered in the same kind of way because it didn't rely on a navy and was more insular. Um, right, but the difference between now and then is that no power on earth can aspire to be a global power without engaging in the global nature of uh, our world today. And even those rare peoples in the Amazon and so on who, who try to stay aloof from this global society are still vulnerable to a pathogen like this or to global warming and, and the other manifestations of the, the global age. And that's both a sobering thought, but there may be some silver linings to that cloud in our contemporary setting. And I think the challenges that Thucydides lays bare in the Athenian experience are, are among the ones that are the most important to take with us as lessons for how to think about what this particular pathogen is and how to confront it, but also there's a way of thinking about this pathogen as itself a symptom of a larger set of plagues that we face in this global period. Hmm. And so, as you know very well, Thucydides says in the introductory passages of, of the Peloponnesian War book that he intends his book as a gift for all time. 
And his discussion of the plague echoes that when he says, look, I, I don't pretend to know what this plague was or where it originated, but I'm going to set down my recollections of it as best I can so that if anything like this resurfaces in the future, you can be prepared for it. And that's a good example of what he's trying to do with the book as a whole, is to give us some advanced warning to how civilizations can respond well or badly to the earthquakes that crises and war can bring to the norms that they live by and think are uh, enduring but can vanish in the twinkling of an eye. And actually, since you mentioned that uh, opening passage, those opening passages about the plague, that's already interesting to look at. I'll, I'll just quickly uh, uh, read that. That mm -hmm. is in uh, section uh, uh, 48 in, uh, uh, in uh, Thucydides uh, here. And he says, about the origins of the plague. Now anyone, doctor or layman, may say as much as he knows about where this probably came from or what causes he thinks are powerful enough to bring about so great a change. For my part, I will only say what it was like. I will show what to look for so that if the plague breaks out again, people may know in advance and not be ignorant. I will do this because I had the plague myself and I myself saw others who suffered from it. Yeah. He you know, admirably, uh, especially given our own time and our own context, resists the uh, temptation to talk about causes. And he says, I will only describe effects. And we know that causes can be easily uh, manipulated. So we've seen in our own time, the causes of the coronavirus be manipulated in, you know, everything from calling it the Wuhan virus and uh, the uh, attempts to uh, drum up uh, uh, the uh, Chinese origins of the virus for uh, uh, political uh, purposes. And Thucydides essentially refuses to play that game from the start. He says, we don't know enough about how these things originate to say um, too much about the origins. Let's focus on a descriptive uh, uh, discussion. So, I mean, one thing, off the bat that we can, you know, and I wonder what you think, learn from this is this kind of epistemological humbleness or modesty and this awareness probably that, you know, there's a speculativeness that can be harmful in talking about the origins. I'm a witness to the effects. Let's, let, let's focus on the effects. Uh, a lesson a bit lost on us these days. Yeah, I think it connects with there's a really fascinating paradox in Thucydides as an author. On the one hand, there's this grand ambition to write a book that will be a gift for all times, uh, an expansive history of the war, like Churchill writing the history of the Second World War. And on the other hand, his own modesty, his self-effacing modesty in the book. Mm -hmm. And there's something quite admirable about that. Uh, you're absolutely right that his epistemological reticence and his epistemological modesty are important as a political lesson. 
for us because they do warn us against allowing politics to intrude upon something where we as human beings have very little control. And mm -hmm. the best thing to do is to describe and prepare as best we can. Now, he has contempt clearly for the science of medicine in his time, uh, or at least no faith in it as something that can provide any relief from a plague like this. We are a little bit better off than that. At the same time, as you said, we see how the origins of this virus are still being manipulated and we don't know enough about it to say. And so I think that modesty is crucial. It's part of Thucydides' teaching, I think, about the politics of societies in crisis. So yeah. you see it in the case of the plague. You see it in other episodes in the Peloponnesian War. The ones that come to mind most prominently for me are his discussions of the debates in Athens over how to punish their vassal allies who rebel against their empire because the inclination is to put everyone to death. Right. And one has a leader like Cleon, who I think is a very good stand-in in Athenian democracy for our Trump. Uh, he's, a, he's a populist. He's a man who rose to wealth from lowly beginnings and who relies upon popular anger to motivate his own political rise. And Thucydides clearly sees his lack of modesty, his hubris, as part of what is the undoing of Athens in the long run uh, by seeking out these extreme measures. So. Mm -hmm. I think Thucydides, it's not an obvious link, but I think Thucydides in showing this epistemological reticence is inviting us to political modesty in times yeah. of crisis. That's a really interesting point because in some way the whole history is an account of these more modest uh, measured voices losing out. If it's Archidamus in Sparta, or if it's Diodotus in that debate over what to do with rebellious uh, uh, Mytilene, or if it's uh, 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 in the uh, uh, context of the uh, Sicilian expedition um, and uh, the uh, modest view being uh, uh, completely sort of uh, uh, drowned out there. Um, I'm wondering in terms of the placement uh, in the book, there, there is this jarring uh, uh, juxtaposition, so jarring I think that even the editors of the different versions of this uh, 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 book pointed out that the discussion of the plague comes uh, immediately after this, um, you know, almost without a break, uh, uh, immediately after this uh, glorious uh, funeral oration from Pericles. So, 
at the conclusion of the first uh, uh, year of the war, uh, uh, Pericles uh, gives this oration uh, in honor of uh, Athens' war dead and gives, you know, this famous speech where the whole world is uh, the grave for famous men and describes the uh, living standards and principles and uh, institutions and way of life of Athens as being uh, uniquely worth dying for. And you get this kind of picture of civic glory, really, that is Athens. And immediately after that, you get the discussion uh, of a society falling apart, essentially, of the same society falling apart. So I was wondering what you make of deciding to smash those two together like that? Well, it, it seems clearly intentional to me as well. Uh, on the one hand, you have this soaring language of nobility and dedication to the Athenian democracy. Uh, and then in the, in the very next passage in the book, there's this tumbling into sort of abject misery and the thing that always stays with me and I think for many people stays with them in the de description of the plague is how completely hopeless and isolating it is for people and especially for people who have any nobility of character what Thucydides calls pretensions to virtue they are the ones who are most likely to die because they take on the tasks of caring for their friends and neighbors. So, of course, they contract the disease and the doctors contract the disease and they die first. And so the only way you can survive or increase your chances of surviving is to minimize your contact. So he doesn't use the term social distancing, but he clearly describes a context in which the poor, the refugees in the city who are crowded in upon one another and don't have the ability to social distance are most vulnerable to the plague, as well as those who are in a position to survive, but who choose to be noble, actually sacrifice their lives. It's it's a devastating portrait. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not sure what to make of it because I, on the one hand, I do think Thucydides admires people of noble character, a figure like Brasidas among the Spartans. And although I think he may be critical in many ways of Pericles, it's clear he also admires Pericles for his achievements and for his leadership. So what is one to make of this? One, is, one, one lesson may simply be that Thucydides is pointing out the limits of human endurance, that nobility can take you only so far and you shouldn't count on it. You need to be open-eyed and understand that human beings are finite and that virtue has its limits. And so don't, 
don't expect everything to count for that. A man like Nicias, right? <laughs> Uh, at the end in the Sicilian expedition, who is a man of great virtue, it does not save him either. Does that mean that Thucydides is telling us that virtue is a scam, that we should abandon it? I don't think so. Yeah. He is simply pointing out that extreme situations are an extreme test of virtue that even the best of us may fail. So we need to be prepared for war or plague to have that kind of effect on us. And when I reflect on our present moment, I think we have to be really grateful that as bad as the effects of the coronavirus are, it's not Ebola. Yeah, nor is it the Athenian plague, which killed the, of the, the population. Plague, which sounds even worse than Ebola, if something like that is to be imagined. Yeah. But what would have happened to American society if, if it were something like Ebola? Yeah. Right now, our doctors and nurses and EMTs are acting with great nobility. And many of them are falling ill and dying as a result of this. Yeah. But the great difference is that they have some ammunition yeah. on their side. They're not, it's not a completely futile gesture what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're completely right. And I think two things in, you know, in, in a way, two things are going on here. Thucydides is talking about being overwhelmed by an extreme crisis in which not only virtue, but any of the points on the compass, anything that can guide you falls apart and you don't know what to do. So he seems to be describing, you know, this amazing scene where um, science won't give you an answer and religion won't give you an answer, and virtue won't give you an answer. And in a way, whatever you do doesn't kind of, there's no way to rationally advance the causes of well-being and survival because the whole thing is too overwhelming. So there's this amazing passage that you referred to in section 51, which he begins with, he says, there was no medical treatment that could be prescribed as beneficial for what helped one patient did harm to another. And there's some echoes of that in which we're, you know, kind of trying to figure out uh, uh, how exactly the course of the coronavirus goes and we don't quite know and every day brings uh, a new spread of uh, speculation. Uh, uh, Should you wear a mask? Shouldn't you wear a mask? Right, right, right. And he says, physical strength turned out to be of no avail for the plague carried the strong away with the weak, no mm -hmm. matter what regimen they had followed. You know, there's some echoes here of the comfort that many of us fond still find in the fact that, well, maybe the relatively young aren't affected. The anxiety that results when we found that when we find out that actually that uh, guideline is not completely true, not completely uh, powerful. But then there's the point that you said. He moves on to virtue. He says, 
for if people held back from visiting each other, same passage, for if people held back from visiting each other through fear, then they died in neglect, and many houses were emptied because there was nobody to provide care. So if you practice lack of virtue, there's math death, but if you, if you practice virtue, you die with the people you take care of. If they did visit each other, they died, and these were mainly the ones who made some pretense to virtue, that wonderful phrase that you point out. A lot of what I take of this is, you know, what a society looks like when it becomes completely overwhelmed, when it goes into vertigo, when it has nothing uh, to guide it. Science, religion, virtue uh, uh, don't, don't quite provide answers. And we have like shadows of each of those in some ways, uh, but not quite the full-fledged, you know, science is helping us a little. Physical strength is helping us a little. Uh, virtue, you know, still has its rewards in volunteering now. And I think part of what Thucydides is saying, and maybe that's part of what makes sense of the juxtaposition, is if, however, this becomes a tsunami, if, however, you know, this becomes completely overwhelming such that, you know, the worst predictions come true and uh, uh, as in Athens, you know, so many people die, then it turns out that civilization is not as glorious as described in Pericles' funeral oration, not as robust, but actually that its crust is very, very thin and that we rely on it too much, that how thick the crust of civilization is depends on how big the crisis is. Well, so I think that's the interesting point. Uh, how thick is the crust? And can you do anything to thicken it? Yeah. Is it a constant no matter what kind of civilization you have? And I do think there's a lesson there from Thucydides because I do think that different civilizations can be more and less resilient to crisis. And in fact, there is a whole field of study about the resilience <clears throat> communities now and people who are involved in especially urban governance but others as well study this question of what makes for a resilient community and how can you plan to increase that resilience yeah but and i think, do think is it the same saying though that if the if things get bad enough nothing makes for a resilient community like well I, I, I think that must be true, you know, if there's a, an asteroid hurtling towards Earth and causes a tidal wave that white... Yeah. But then there's always the question remains, how are you going to be in the face of nearly certain demise? There's still room for choice, at least at the individual level, and maybe if you're resilient enough at the civilizational level, at least in pockets. Yeah. Because, it, you know, not everybody has to let themselves go. And it really does depend yeah. on what one thinks a good life is. And that depends on how a community has raised its members to think about the meaning of their lives. Yeah. So even in facing death, people handle it better and worse. And 
that's true on the individual level and it can be true on the on the communal level as well so i think the crust in athens was maybe thinner hmm. than it might have been i don't know you can pick you can pick some examples but i do think britain during during uh the battle of britain maintained yep. its crust pretty well yeah and it had a good leader to help them maintain that crust yeah uh <laughs> You know, things were pretty grim for Britain then, just as they were grim for the Athenians during the Persian War when they had to abandon their own city. They, under Themistocles, still managed to keep it together. They, they could have easily collapsed then. Right. They didn't. Yeah. And I think the lesson there is that we shouldn't just leave the resilience of our communities to nature, as it were, that we must be mindful of it and think about the ways that we educate our young, that we support our institutions to reinforce the resilience of communities. Yeah. They will always have their breaking point, but I don't think it's a constant. I don't think the same crisis will destroy every community in the same way. Yeah. The other passages in the Thucydides that are really remarkable about that are the passages on the civil wars induced by the larger Peloponnesian War. So in the larger Peloponnesian War, the two main parties are the Democrats and the oligarchs, the rule of the, those who want rule of the few versus those who want rule of the many. And in his passage on the civil wars what's so horrible about them is how different communities are forced into this polarization much like we see in america today there's a polarization not in exactly the same way but there the polarization thucydides says you couldn't be neutral the people who tried to be moderate who tried to find a middle path were forced to choose sides. And if they still refused to choose sides, then they became the victims of both sides. Hmm. So that's another example of civilizational decay. And communities that are resilient are less likely to fall apart into this kind of factionalism. And you begin to see it in the United States now, I think, with coronavirus, over the question of when do we put America back to work? So just in these past few days, there were these protests in Michigan by people who object to the Michigan governor's prolongation of the social distancing and they were largely Trump supporters saying, you know, this has to end. Well, who suffers because it has to end? Yeah. And this is where we might begin to see that resilience decaying. To what extent does our 
common good require that we take care of everybody for as long as possible through this crisis. <laughs> it's so remarkable that, uh, what's his name? Is it Andrew Yang, the Democratic presidential candidate? Mm -hmm. His proposal for a minimum basic income. Universal basic income, yeah. Has in fact been temporarily adopted by the United States during this crisis. Mm -hmm. Maybe not perfectly, but by sending out people who have been made vulnerable by this crisis, uh, checks, right? Yeah. That has to be maintained for as long as we're in this crisis to maintain community resilience. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because some uh, of the countries in Europe uh, have uh, uh, committed to a longer term uh, uh, issuing of uh, uh, payments, not just a, a one-off. So actually closer to the idea of a universal basic income, which in theory at least is supposed to be uh, no strings attached, unconditional and continuous rather than a one-time payout. I agree. Um, and so, I mean, part of what you seem to be implying is that um, a degree of social solidarity uh, is uh, uh, a component of the civilizational crust being thicker or uh, uh, thinner. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the very least, it seems like, and you know, this is not a, a very original uh, idea, it seems like these kind of uh, uh, pandemics expose the parts of the social crust that are uh, uh, thin. Uh, there does seem to be something in the structuring of Thucydides' book that is very aware of this, this really jarring move from the exaltation of look how great we are as a society, a shining city on the hill, as we like to say here, which is the theme of the uh, funeral oration, and therefore everybody who dies for us uh, deserves glory everlasting to saying, you know, and here is all the myriad ways in which we immediately fell apart as this uh, struck. Um, and, you know, part of this might be because 30% of the population was wiped out. Uh, although it seems like the crust of civilization there started crumbling before they knew, uh, that's just an interpretation, but before they knew how, how massive uh, uh, the crisis uh, has been. Uh, I wanted to ask you about another uh, uh, thing that he, um, uh, another thing that he uh, uh, emphasizes here. Uh, he has this uh, great discussion in sections 52 and mainly 53. He says that very quickly people uh, let go of everything that is exalted and holy and most important to them uh, in the Greek context, of course, uh, funeral rites and uh, uh, respect for the dead. And by the way, we're seeing a version of that uh, uh, as well with you know everything from not being able to uh, participate in uh, uh, funerals to uh, mobile uh, uh, morgues and that the sort of last honors of the dead uh, are uh, being uh, cast aside for understandable reasons, but that's, a, um, you know, one, one concern. But then he talks about this move to uh, uh, instant gratification, uh, yeah. people's failure to uh, uh, believe in the future. 
people, uh, I'm reading from section 53 there, people dared to do freely things that they would have hidden before, things they would have never admitted that they did for pleasure. And so because they thought their lives and their property were equally ephemeral, they justified seeking quick satisfaction and easy pleasures. As for doing what had been considered noble, no one was eager to take any further pains, yeah. uh, but they focused on the pleasure of the moment. Whatever contributed to that were set up as standards of nobility and usefulness. No one was held back in awe, either by fear of the gods or by the laws of men, not by the gods because men concluded it was all the same, whether they worshipped or not, not by the law because they thought they wouldn't live long enough to be punished. And so Thucydides seems to be saying that's a feature of these kind of crises that turn towards instant gratification. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I think our civilization has its way of trying to address that and being worried about it in all of the apocalyptic television and so on that we see now, right? So The Walking Dead, for example, or Lost or something like that. How, who maintains a modicum of civilizational crust? Who casts everything aside for the pleasures of the moment or in order simply to survive. And I think those things should stand as a warning to us. I think it is a warning that it's too easy to congratulate ourselves in, in good times. That's when we should be preparing the resilience of our community, not just patting ourselves in the back for when these crises do come. Because if you fall asleep at the switch about this, you're not preparing your citizens to deal with the crisis when it's upon you. So uh, what's an example? Oh, what he says about the gods it certainly points to a very transactional conception of, of, of piety that was, I'm sure, very common in the ancient world and is probably almost as common now, if not equally so, that if you just do right by the gods, they'll do right by you and they'll protect you. I don't think that's the only way to think about one's awe before the divine yeah uh and i don't know enough about it really to say whether or not americans for example have a have a less transactional and therefore more resilient conception of their relation to divinity and would therefore maintain their virtue as it were more fully in the face of a crisis than the Athenians did. Yeah, I mean, I, there's almost, I mean, maybe this is just my own uh, preoccupation with reading Burke in the last few years, a few times, yeah. but it, it, it's almost like there's some echoes of that there where if you live through uh, the uh, 
falling apart, the disintegration of uh, all social hierarchies around you, Thucydides seems to be saying your view of everything becomes transactional. Yeah. And uh, you start focusing, if you see the great fall, uh, and uh, if you see a calamity that uh, indiscriminately uh, uh, hits the great and uh, the less exalted, uh, there's an inevitable move towards uh, um, there's an inevitable move towards uh, uh, these kind of short-term uh, uh, pleasures. Uh, you know, against that is a version of what you were saying earlier, and uh, uh, maybe a version of what Aristotle says about the permanence of virtue. That while none of us is immune to uh, uh, bad luck, having a kind of developed character gives you uh you know something flux resistant where you um you know which uh what's the language he uses there in the ethics which shines like a, a diamond or something like that through uh, uh through adversity Thucydides is not having any of it i don't know if i would agree with that very last point that you make because i'm not sure that thucydides himself gives in to complete cynicism i think he he is open-eyed though about how a thin crust is very vulnerable to completely caving in in this way that this very ugly aspect of human nature is there beneath the surface. And if you're not mindful of your community's resilience, it will come out depending on how hard circumstances scratch at the crust, right? Yeah. But Aristotle, I'm glad you mentioned Aristotle. And I, I love that expression. I think you I think you should write a paper on it. Flux resistance. Yeah. <laughs> I, I owe that to our uh, I owe that to our old friend David Rushnik. That's uh, that does not surprise me. It's a great it's a great phrase, and I was thinking of Aristotle in this as well because Aristotle clearly thinks that the way a society raises its young and builds a generation and builds character not just in individuals, but in the social fabric of institutions makes a difference to both how individuals are flux resistant and whole societies are flux resistant. Aristotle says that the happy person is much more likely to be able to maintain their composure in the midst of a great upheaval. He doesn't think that, he does say that even the happiest and most, the people of the greatest character, if you put enough pressure on them, if you, you know, you give them the fate of Priam to see their whole city burned and all their children killed, you know, they might break. Right. But you, there's a lot of room between somebody who's just happy-go-lucky and happens to live in a in a time where nothing <laughs> nothing tests them 
and Priam or the Holocaust or something like that on the other end. And so you can build individual and community resilience, but you have to be modest. You can't be hubristic and self-congratulatory. If you're going to have high ideals and high ambitions for yourself, like Athens does, turn the mirror on yourself. Look carefully at yourself. Look for your weaknesses because pride cometh before a fall. And I think we're in a very similar situation. Our hubris about our greatness has left us vulnerable in this moment. Yeah, I I think that's wonderful. In a way, that's literally the arrangement of the book, Pride Cometh Before the Fall. uh, And very much describes the move from the funeral oration to the uh, to the uh, plague discussion. Maybe uh, since our time is uh, running short, maybe as a a concluding uh, theme there, Thucydides survives the plague and gets to continue reporting, even though the reporting is uh, uh, unfinished, uh, about the war. Uh, One question is, what do these calamities do to the psyche of the survivors? How do they change our worldview after they happen? Seeing firsthand, you know, rather than reading about the Spanish flu or a fire in Lisbon or the earthquake in Lisbon, sorry, and so on and so forth, like seeing firsthand the thin of uh, civilization's crust, seeing firsthand the collapse and irrelevance of these uh, hierarchies that have uh, ordered our lives, seeing firsthand the paltriness of scientific knowledge where, you know, all of a sudden here we are in Boston, the epicenter of medical knowledge, of public health knowledge, and you walk into the hospitals and they don't have enough uh, masks and the doctors and the nurses are uh, uh, getting it and they're, you know, washing uh, equipment that is supposed to be uh, uh, one-time use and so on and so forth. The fact that we, you know, anticipated and predicted that uh, uh, economic displacement would come from automation and now that almost seems irrelevant because it's come from this, you know, completely primitive force. It seems to really put a damper on our Panglossian Steven Pinker views of everything's working out, don't worry. Yeah, everything's for the best in this best of all possible worlds, I think. So what what does it do, do you think, to the psyche of the people? Well, you know, the, in the passage that you were quoting just before, where he writes, if they did visit each other, they died. And these were mainly the ones who made some pretense to virtue. Yeah. He goes on and he says this, For these people would have been ashamed to spare themselves. And so they went into their friends' houses, especially in the end, when even family members worn out by the lamentations of the dying were overwhelmed by the greatness of the calamity. And then he says this, and this is in section 52. But those who had recovered had still more compassion both on those who were dying and on those who were sick, because they knew the disease firsthand 
and were now out of danger. For this disease, fortunately, never attacked anyone a second time with fatal effect. So, you know, that puts a somewhat more hopeful spin on what would otherwise seem an entirely cynical account. It's, there's this glimmer of hope in human decency in Thucydides, but human decency has to be predicated on a clear-eyed understanding of what horrors humans are capable of, and that the crust of civilization, if not well attended, can break very easily. But that compassion that he mentions, that has to apply to him as well, right? Those who had recovered had still more compassion. Isn't that partially a testimony, a commentary on himself and on his writing the entire history? If he's giving to us a gift for all time in writing this book, it is because he still has some faith in the glimmer of decency in human beings and that he wants us to be clear-eyed but do everything we can to make our communities more resilient, to be as compassionate as the circumstances admit and to prepare as best we can. And so in that, I think we have to be grateful for our science, which gives us a bit more of an edge than the Greeks did in his time. At the same time, we have to be mindful of the fact that we can have leaders like we do now who pay no attention <laughs> to the science and are motivated by passions and ambitions like Cleon was that get in the way of resilience. So decency yep. has a lot to contend with in the real world if it wants to live a virtuous life. Yeah. I don't think Thucydides yeah. has given up on virtue. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that both, I mean, that raises at least two questions. One is the degree to which this degree of resilience and the ability to rebuild the civilizational crust or how thick it is in the first place is tied into leadership. And you mentioned the English example and you mentioned uh, uh, Churchill's example with, uh, you know, who uh, uh, regardless of the many, many uh, uh, vices and uh, uh, historical wrongs that he was involved with until the war was the person to kind of shore up the civilizational crust uh, 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 there and to in some ways embody it in a real instance of world historical luck for the British, you know, whether or not they would have had the stiff upper lip and stay on, uh, stay calm and carry on uh, approach without him, I think is a really interesting counterfactual. Um, but the other one, which your really, really interesting comment about Thucydides himself uh, having a degree of uh, 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 compassion and decency, suggesting that he was to some extent changed to the better by this. Yeah. Uh, 
And to me, I mean, that, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Are we going to be somewhat changed to the better by this with a slightly heightened level of uh, uh, compassion, social solidarity? Or is this impulse for returning to normality and to baseline so powerful that essentially you kind of bounce back to where you are? So, uh, I think some of the literature on uh, uh, personal trauma uh, points to uh, a bounce back effect to where you were rather than sort of yeah. positive moral development in the wake of it. But it, you know, that's more psychological kind of, uh, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I... Well, one way to answer your question or address the phenomenon that you're describing is to say that the coronavirus is a kind of global stress test on the resiliency of communities. Yeah. But it's a stress test not just on individual nations and how well they do, but on the global community itself. And it's a stress test, which is really important. And this may be the silver lining to this one, because this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, the global age is upon us. And whether we like it or not, and the threats that are coming are far worse than the coronavirus. This is unlikely to be the last pandemic that we see in the global age. There are likely to be more. And the effects of global climate change are going to be even worse. And the only way that we can address those things is through the resilience of an international global response. And so this is again a stress test, which is why Trump's scapegoating of the World Health Organization is, to my mind, an act of vandalism. Whatever whose failings were, the only way we're gonna deal with this in the future is by strengthening our international institutions and looking at the nations like New Zealand, where the leadership was very fine, in dealing with this crisis. Yeah. Uh, so the lesson of Thucydides is to pay attention, <laughs> pay attention to the thickness of the crust of your civilization and don't take it for granted. And right now we're facing that question on a global scale, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So that's probably a good, mixed optimistic, pessimistic, or as uh, one wonderful Palestinian poet put it, optimistic uh, uh, <laughs> note, to, uh, note to end on. Uh, Greg, this has been great. Thank you so much oh, for that. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this session. We both love this author, and it's wonderful to be able to think about him as somebody whose gift for all time still seems to have relevance. Yeah, he, he was he was really right. He, it was a good prediction. I'll well, talk to you Stay soon. well, stay well, and uh, invite me again. I'll look forward to it. Thank you. Bye-bye.